Normally I like to talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff first, but I'm gonna skip that this time, because I got plenty of other things to talk about, and honestly, the behind-the-scenes information on this one, uh, while certainly interesting, is more of a study in game design than anything else, and would be the focus of several videos rather than the purview here. My only real thoughts is that I wish they had announced the game so far in advance, although considering how well the game sold, maybe that was a good move. I don't know. I want to talk about the gameplay section first, and then I'm going to talk about the story section, and I have one major complaint in each, and I want to start with that for the same reasons I usually start with my negatives. The first negative thing I want to say about Breath of the Wild in the gameplay section is the durability. Now I'm pausing here because it, I found that some people will just be like, ugh, not worth listening to, and turn off the video as soon as they hear that. And I wanted to open with that in case anybody like that was listening to this and was like, ah. Anybody who is willing to continue listening, I'm going to try my best to explain this. I've actually explained this like three or four times, but it's always on stream and an unrelated stream. So this will be the first time I'm doing a Breath of the Wild video discussing the Breath of the Wild durability problem, not counting when, I, when it came up during the premiere run, obviously. Durability as a mechanic in a game is simply another game concept. It's, okay, your stuff wears down, so you have to refill it over time. In a way, it functionally becomes a form of ammo from a purely game design perspective, which obviously has its own benefits and detriments when it comes to adding it into your game. Now, as I've said many, many times, especially this year, this point just keeps coming up, a game mechanic is not inherently bad or good by itself. It depends on what you do with it and how you implement it. And this is one of the reasons why I feel Breath of the Wild's durability problem is a problem. Because, in my opinion, Breath of the Wild was not built with the durability problem in mind. Let's kind of go down the list here. So obviously, the durability, the number of hits your weapons can take is way too short. Way too small, I should say. There's Things will run out astonishingly quickly. It got to the point, at least for me personally, when I had the Guardian weapons, and I was hesitant to use them unless it was something really serious, because they just did not have that many hits in them. And never mind the weaker weapons, which take like 15 or 12 hits before they actually are destroyed, which is ridiculous. So... That's the first problem. The durability is too short. The second problem is you can't, with only a couple of exceptions, because I know you can repair the champion's weapons, and I know the Master Sword slowly repairs itself, but with those exceptions, you cannot repair items. So if you find an item that you really like, well, that's tough, because eventually it will run out and you'll be done with it. So, again, I mentioned the Guardian weapons as a good example of this. Uh, or the Lionel weapons, that's another good example. The third problem is extremely limited inventory space, which is another thing that has other issues, but is specifically with regards to the weapons, leaves you being like, hey, it's, oh, I've got like 10 weapon slots, so I can carry around 10 weapons, each of which has limited durability. And you can expand those slots, of course, if you run around doing the Korok thing, which, well, let's just say that that takes a while and has a relatively uh, low return on investment when it comes to how much time it takes to get one additional inventory slot. The ability to, for example, stack similar weapon types would have been able to help solve this problem. Uh, or just not limiting you on weapon slots. You know, one of those two things. Finally, there's... Well, actually, I shouldn't even say finally. There's actually like five more things. But the last biggest problem is the fact that 
the encounters of this game are relatively difficult and generally don't drop stuff that's as worth what you need to really get a good fight out of it. In other words, if you go in with lower tier weapons, it'll take more hits, meaning you lose more durability. But if you go in with higher tier weapons, you will come out of it with lower tier weapons because they don't drop those high tier of weapons. Make sense? So because of the drop rates, because of the uh, encounter design, which I actually praise, by the way, don't, don't mistake me, but because of the difficulty of the encounters, because of the limited inventory space, because of the fact that you can't repair, and because of the fact that their ability is so short, all of these things combined make the durability thing a problem. In short, it is my opinion that the game was not designed with the durability mechanic in mind, with one very noteworthy exception, and that would be Eventide Island, which is one of my favorite little sections of the game, to be honest with you. That worked great, because Eventide Island was this small, contained little area built built to be this survival type thing, built to have you using, having nothing and working with nothing and having a stick that you can use five or six times before it breaks. The encounters, the layout, and the the stuff that was there, the, the lootable uh, equipment and items that were on that island were all designed with these mechanics in mind. But in my opinion, the rest of the game was not. Uh, one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to anyone playing this game is be, get 13 hearts as quickly as you can, or 14, or whatever it is, and beeline for the Master Sword to just bypass that problem entirely. Now, I know that the durability problem doesn't bother some people, and that's fine. You know, I, I, I've gotten a hellacious amount of negative feedback over my streams and my reviews over the fact that I could consider it a durability problem, that I consider it to be a negative to the game. For me, it wasn't just a negative it was a continuing negative. It is, in fact, the biggest reason why I've always hesitated to go back and finish this game, and why I was very hesitant to pick up this game again for this playthrough. In fact, I don't perceive myself ever playing through this game again because of the durability problem, and the fact that there's nothing I can really do about it. There's no, there's no toggle, which would have also solved these problems, and there's no modding ability to be able to fix this out. Now, obviously, the, the ideal solution would be to design the game to use the durability amount of mechanic properly, similar to the island, like I must just mentioned. But it would be nice to just have a toggle that just says, nope, you know, and it gets it to the point where durability is turned off. That simple option right there would be all I would need to really be able to enjoy this game the way I want to. And that is a shame, in my opinion, because this is a really, really good game. Like, a really, really good game. Um, now, granted, I've made the statement before, and will say it again, that every real Zelda game is a good game, that there's no such thing as a bad, real Zelda game. So that's not super surprising, but there's a reason this one blew everyone out of the, out of the par park. Although, maybe it's only kind of a 7 out of 10, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just kidding. Let's talk about things. So, this is the weirdest notes I've ever taken for a rumination. It's actually only half the page, but that's because every note is a single word. For example, the first word is gliding. I love the gliding mechanic. I love the ability to... <sighs> Between gliding and climbing, 
the world is amazing. Like, I, I don't know how better to explain that, but I'm going to try my best. This is in total contrast to what I just mentioned about the durability problem. This world is very clearly designed for you to be able to climb up stuff, sail out on stuff, climb up other stuff, go up over this thing, go over here, dash this direction. The world is built with exploration and movement in mind. At no point in time, well, that's not true. Very, very rarely was it actually a chore to get from point A to point B. Instead, it was like, I wonder what's over there. Anybody who watched the stream when I was doing the premiere run of this knows that one of my favorite things to do, and I had to keep myself from doing this too much because I was worried about being boring on camera, was I just liked picking a direction and going. I mentioned earlier this year when I was going through uh, Red Dead Redemption about how there's certain games that I just love exploring, how the game not only encourages but rewards exploration. Of the games I listed there, I kind of deliberately left this one out because I wanted to do the replay before I codified my opinion on that. Having replayed this, this is the best exploration game I've ever played. You know, in contrast to uh, Assassin's Creed 4, Red Dead Redemption, and whatever the other one is I mentioned, I don't remember right now. You know, this, this game is a game in which I want to just pick it up and pick a direction and go. I want to see what's over there. I want to see what's in that direction. I want to find new quests. I want to find new enemies. I want to climb that mountain. There were so many times where I just saw something and I'm like, I wonder what's up there. Dun, 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 dun. You know, and I just went that direction. And the gliding is one of the biggest things in service of this. So you lose stamina while gliding, but at a very short pace and nice mechanic design, if you run out of stamina while gliding, you get one more little puff of the glide in order to reset your your, your uh, momentum when you're getting towards the ground. So even if you're doing a really long-distance glide, you're still, especially if you're aware of this mechanic, you're still likely to not die in the process, and the glide is at a fairly low uh, angle of descent, which means you can get a lot of horizontal movement on that relatively quickly, too. It's something I've talked about recently with regards to uh, Shadow, of Mo Shadow of War, the second one. Uh, quick segue. One of the things I've said many times in any kind of open structured game, whether it's an open world game or a do-it-in-your-own pace game or a Metroidvania or whatever, is movement. Getting from point A to point B has to be entertaining or quick, or both. And not every game does that. Uh, I have relatively recently played The Division, and The Division actually fails miserably at this point. While there is fast travel, getting from point A to point B is actually quite boring and disinteresting. It's just a jog. By contrast, Shadow of War, the game I mentioned earlier, getting from point A to point B is a treat. It's like, yeah, woo, and I'm going to jump, and I'm going to do this. And it's very quick and smooth, and it's all on you. Uh, the Just Cause series would be another series uh, that does a good job of getting from point A to point B being entertaining. Breath of the Wild does this too, and the glider is one of the biggest reasons why. Um, there's something so... I, I can't even explain it probably. There's something so wonderfully comforting is the word I want to use about being able to look around wherever spot you're in and say, okay, I need to get over there. And just doing it, knowing that you could just do that. I suppose one of the reasons that affects me so much is there's two things that have always bothered the crap out of me when it comes to video games for basically my entire life. This is going back to the 80s. This has been a, an issue for me. Invisible walls, or in other words, limited progress, and uh, chest, the chest-high wall syndrome, right? You can't go over this. You can't go through this. How many times in Final Fantasy VIII is it ridiculous that you can't just jump over the tiny barrier in between you and your destination? 
Uh, how many times in Turok is it weird that you just can't go around this little barrier? You have to go all the way around the other island, right? There's so many different examples of this across gaming. It was actually one of the biggest complaints I had about the recent uh, Call of Duty World War II. I guess that was about a year ago now. Where there was just invisible walls blocking your progress in certain directions for no reason. Breath of the Wild is the total opposite of all of that problem. If I want to go over there, I can go over there. And I can go over there however I want to. I don't have to sit here and think, okay, what method do the developers think of me to get from point A to point B? No, I just do it. And the climbing and the gliding are both part of that. You'll notice, by the way, this is why my notes are like this. I'm still talking about my first bullet point, one word. But I'm going to segue a little bit more to talk about the climbing. I have been spoiled by this game. I cannot tell you how many other games I've played since Breath of the Wild where I've been like, well, I want to go over there, and it's just so automatic to think, okay, I'll go up this, because that's a relatively you know, sword in kind, so it's not going to really hurt my stamina that much. And I can go, oh, right, I can't climb those things in this game, because I can only climb such and such surfaces in this game, or I can only climb such and such areas in this game. Even otherwise excellent games, God of War 4, I just keep referencing that one this year, uh, is a game where you can't climb in places that I keep looking at like, I could climb that! If this, if this was Breath of the Wild, I could climb that. I love the fact that you can climb basically everything. Anybody who watched my stream again knows that I was really pushing the limits of what you could climb just to see it. And there's places, you could scale literally solid wall. You're, you're basically Spider-Man, and it's completely gameplay and story segregation. And I don't care because it's awesome. Because being able to climb my way to victory, being able to maneuver around things or saying, well, here's a mountain. Now I want to go to the other side of this mountain. Now I could get on my horse and go down and go down the path and rock around here and take another path up here and do that. Or, or, I could go up. And I could do that. I actually have the availability to do that. Now, based on how much you've expanded your stamina bar, you're limited in vertical movement. But you get used to little tricks and, and things that you can do to try and make that work. And there's another similar last-minute stamina mechanic with climbing, similar to there is uh, with the gliding, although you have to be trickier with that one because you really only get the one grab. And there's little ledges, right? Like, you get used to looking up and like, okay, there's a ledge right there and there's a ledge right there. So I'm going to have to climb up to there, pause to refill my stamina, climb up to there, pause, and go up there. And once you do defeat the, uh, the wind boss, I can't think of what it's called right now off the top of my head, Vado or something like that, I don't remember the name of the four divine beasts, but once you beat that boss, uh, the gust up is works seamlessly and smoothly with the climbing mechanic and with the the gliding mechanic. Both of all three of these things combined. Once you've got that wind ability, you have basically opened up the world at that point. There's very few places you can just say, you know what, I want to go that way. My favorite example of this personally is when you're going south towards the desert, uh, there's obviously several routes you can go, but there's a fairly large uh, like pseudo plateau plateau there. It's where the, there's snow on top and whatnot. And you're supposed to go around that. But I looked at that like, eh, gust up, climb up, glide down, desert. I love it. My next point here is tools. I love the remote bomb more than any of the other tools. I mean, the other tools are technically more useful, but there was something just wonderfully enjoyable about the remote bomb and the fact that it's so malleable for so many different things. Obviously, it can be used for combat. It is the absolute last ditch, no really, you're out of everything method of still attacking enemies. It does very, very little damage, which 
I get why they did that. They wanted to discourage you from, you know, using the bombs as an offensive weapon. If I'm if I was designing this, I probably would have upped the damage of the bombs, probably by about double, which still would be relatively small, especially compared to the major weapons you get later on. But it would have given you a few more options for combat. It would have also made bombing someone to start combat or, or laying a trap in the form of a bomb or whatever a more feasible option. As is, a bomb is mostly just useful for distracting or, um, you know, uh, dazing someone. Like, ah, and they go flying for a second. You've got a few seconds to run up and get there. But I did still love it, especially for its purposes in tool uh, usage. In other words, for puzzle design. The This is probably a good time to segue into the shrines. Can I just say that I love the shrines in this game? Oh my god. The amount of time and effort it pro had, had to take to design these shrines is insane. I didn't know this when I first played this game. Because I was just assuming based on uh, context. But there's actually several shrines which have several solutions. I am not sure if that's intended or not. Because most of these shrines boil down to physics puzzles. But I, most of these physics puzzles are very, very tightly well, uh, designed and very, very smart, which means there's not just one solution. So I'm, I'm willing to believe it's at least partially true. Obviously, that's not true in all cases. Some cases, you have to put the balls in these slots to open the door, and that's that. But in some cases, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to pull this down here and bounce off of it, so I jump over this wall. There we go. You know, and that's probably not the intended solution. But I love it. I absolutely adore it. One of the types of puzzle design I have applauded my entire life is the Zelda dungeon design. Um, I've, I've always had a trouble describing that, so I'm just going to do my best here. If you pick up a piece of paper and it says, All right, <clears throat> 15 of these go this way, and 13 of these go this way, and this guy goes down, but this happens over a period of five arms, solve for X. Right? That's a puzzle. That's a, that's a classic puzzle. I've talked about this before. A Zelda puzzle is more, here is a sequence of events, obstacles, or enemies. It's usually terrain-based as well. And you need to get through this territory. How do you do it? I've also, uh, I've, I've been a big study of Zelda design in general. Zelda dungeon design and Zelda puzzle design. Because I feel that it translates very well to tabletop. To uh, Dungeons and Dragons or the Magasan rule set or whatever. And thus... I tend to try and use that kind of design when it comes to designing my own things for GMing games. And I, lo I love it. I absolutely adore it. I cannot praise enough the shrine design. And, of course, that ties neatly into the other tools you have at your disposal. The cryosis thing, which... The cryosis thing is wonderful, too, because it is a tool that allows you to obviously make a pillar, which you can climb and jump off of, and to block things. The first time this really came to my attention was actually with the, the shrine battles. Or the, you know, da -da 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 -da. And you could raise that thing to have them run into it, dazing them, or use it to literally just block their shots. And I'm going to pause for a moment to say that that's another example of one of the things I love about Breath of the Wild. It's a physics-based game, which means you are less restricted in how you can use what you have at your disposal. In a more linear or older video game, for example, the ice rod would only have very contextual usages. And you could use that contextually to make A, B, or C happen in very specific circumstances. But in a physics-based game, what you're doing is you're creating an object in front of you, as long as you have water there. And the only things that limit the use for that is how many situations exist in which having an object in front of you is useful. You can see how that kind of removes some of the shackles of usability. Um, 
Which, of course, brings me to the magnetic thing. Now, the magnetic thing is similarly more limited. Uh, the cryosis thing requires water. The magnetic thing requires something that has been flagged as magnetitable. The magnetic ability is probably the single most restricted ability you get with regards to all of the tools in your toolkit. It was clearly designed to only be used with certain objects, and that does limit its use significantly. It's still very cool, and you can always tell when the people, the designers really put their heart into designing a particular shrine with the magnesis in mind. It's, you know, I'm going to move this over here and drag this up here. And of course, because this is still a physics-based game, it still has more functionality than just the linear ability. Like, okay, I'm going to move this in this exact... To use a parallel... I don't remember if it's Oracle of Seasons or Oracle of Ages. Please forgive me. I think it's Oracle of Seasons. Uh, there's an item you get, which is a magnet. It allows you to push and pull against something that happens to be magnetically interactable. Now, that has fairly limited use because it can only interact with certain things. It can only do these two basic functions. By contrast, the magnesis allows you to do far more than you otherwise would with, the, with clever, uh, clever designer usage. The final one I want to talk about is the time-freezing thing, which has so many uses it's ridiculous, especially to speedrunners. But the fact that you freeze something in time is useful in its own right. The fact that you can freeze something and then build up momentum, that was inspired. Whoever came up with that idea, whatever team or individuals came up with that idea, or individual came up with that idea, they need a medal. Because that is a great concept. It can be used in so many different ways with enemies, with, um, with objects and whatnot. It has also been argued that prodigious use of the stop time mechanic makes this game easy. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I decided to experiment with that a little bit more this time on this playthrough. And I do have to agree on several cases when I was outgunned or outnumbered and low on health. Bzzz, hang on. Really helped me to get out of danger, so to speak. And I imagine abusing it would make the game relatively easier. I'm okay with that, though. I'm generally okay with that kind of thing as long as the game doesn't mandate that I do something to make it easier, and as long as it is my choice to do that or to not. Anybody who watched my stream knows that I basically didn't do that at all in my first playthrough, and I enjoyed the combat immensely, which I suppose is a nice segue into the combat. I love the combat in this game. Prior to this one, Twilight Princess was my favorite overall combat method in the Zelda series. Uh, partially because I was actually good at it, but partially because it felt like I had more control over what I was doing. And rather than just having new spells or new tools, I actually had new movesets that I could use. Uh, reminding me of Zelda 2, which I know is an unpopular opinion, but I rather enjoyed Zelda 2. I feel sem somewhat the same way in this game. You have access to basically all your movesets right at the beginning, but there's a lot of them, and it feels... I, I don't want to use the term Dark Souls-y, because, because it doesn't feel like Dark Souls. I played Dark Souls 1, 2, and 3. But it feels more like Devil May Cry-y, actually, is the, is the comparison I want to make. I am in control of what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. I have the ability to dodge, to block, to, to shift to the side, to ha pull off the slow-mo thing and counterattack if I choose to, assuming I time it right. I have the ability to parry. I have the ability to strike in multiple different fashions, which can hit different arcs, hit different weak points, or to stagger someone, or to back off and cancel my attack in the middle of the thing. I feel like I am in control of every movement and every motion I make in combat, rather than, to use a more standard Zelda staple, swing, 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 and not much else. I also love that 
basically every enemy in the game, with, with I think very few exceptions, is what I call a 100% dodgeable. In other words, you can beat the, every enemy in the game, hypothetically, with a couple of exceptions, at level one with one heart. You know, the, the one heart challenge kind of a thing, or I guess three heart challenge. Because there's nothing they do that you can't dodge, as long as you're quick, as long as you know the timing, as long as you're on it. It rewards skill. Anybody who, again, watched my stream knows that I spent some time trying to defeat my very first Lionel. It was the one up in the up northwest area with the snow. And I loved that fight. I didn't feel frustrated at that fight, even though he was basically two-shotting me, because everything he did was something I could learn and know. My biggest complaint was with how much frickin' health he had. I actually went through like three or four weapons just to kill this guy. It reached a point where I actually had the uh, Silver Lionel, the one in the Hyrule Castle area, on farm. And again, I can attest to this based on stream. Because it was an extremely well-designed fight. It encouraged me to pay attention and learn his movesets and figure out exactly how he was going to fight. And it rewarded me for that attention. I didn't just have to outgear the enemy, although I could. I could get tons and tons of hearts. I could come back with much better weapons. But instead, I had the ability to say, all right, and then... And then hit here, and I need to do this attack, and then I need to use this attack here. That's going to stun him for a moment, then I'm going to do this attack, you know. I was rewarded for paying attention. And the Lionels aren't even, well, the Lionels are probably the best example of that. But this was true from the first moment I went to an area I shouldn't have fairly early in the game and found one of the Guardian Shrines, where I had to fight one of the Guardian bosses. And it was this... It was a, it was like a moderate shrine, I want to say, moderate challenge, something like that. And I was, this was really early in the game for me, and I'm like, oh god, no, wait, wait, I think I've got this, guys. And I did end up beating that guy, because I could, because despite the fact that I was massively out-leveled and out-geared, I could still pay attention and figure out his patterns and, and figure out how to bring him down, and I love that. I love the combat of this game a lot. Um... <clears throat> I mentioned exploration, which is my next bullet point here. I want to mention three other things regarding exploration specifically, because I kind of already talked about that when it came to gliding and climbing. First of all, I love the fast travel system. I feel uh, the fact that you just have to find a shrine, not do it, to open a fast travel point was a good decision in my opinion, and the fact that there are so many shrines gives you another benefit of running around and, and doing all these shrines. There's actually three benefits to doing all the shrines. One is the shrines themselves, which I've already praised. One is the upgrade things you get, which is obviously a more tangible level-up mechanic, a horizontal leveling mechanic. And the final thing is you get more, more fast travel points. You can warp to more areas on the map, opening up the map more. And while there is some load time involved, which is, you know, whatever, not a lot you can do about that, I did very much enjoy being able to just say, I need to go over here. It also helped to, for lack of a better way to put it, encourage me to keep exploring. Because not only would I get rewarded for exploring, as I mentioned earlier, but I had a... every, every time If I explore in a direction and I find a shrine, I have now... It, for lack of a better term, a new base camp, a new, I have put down a new marker, you know, or I've laid down a new road, metaphorically speaking, to get back to this point quickly and easily. And then I could, okay, now I found a shrine, now I'm going to start doing my spiral pattern or spreading out and exploring the nearby area. That's fun and awesome, and I love it. Also, uh, <laughs> when I was playing this on stream, people would not stop saying, uh, Skyrim jokes. Hey, there's a mountain, you can climb it. Now, you can actually do that in this game. 
Uh, my final note here, when we're, oh, excuse me, no, I have two more final notes, actually. Uh, my second and final note here in the gameplay section is cooking. I really, really like cooking in this game. I, it's hard to explain why. I found cooking, uh, crafting, at, a, at its more basic level, is something that is used in a lot of games. But like my earlier comment about game mechanics, I feel that only a few games actually use crafting well as a game mechanic. I feel like in this particular case they succeed for two big reasons. Number one, they bothered to make the cooking to be a visually and interface enjoyable experience. You know what I mean, right? Okay, got the thing. Okay, I got this. All right, awesome. Now, if you're doing mass cooking, that could kind of suck, but I'm not, I'm okay with that in this case because the game doesn't really mandate or even really reward you for mass cooking. It rewards you for trying out stuff and cooking every now and again. It's and I have to admit, just a side little note here. My niece enjoys playing this game a little bit. She's five. Uh, Actually, she will be six by the time this video goes out. And <laughs> it just occurred to me. Um, I'm recording these well in advance, if it's not obvious. My niece loves doing cooking in this game. Like, she, she's reasonably decent at running around and fighting enemies. She has some issues with that, of course. But her favorite thing to do by far is to go back in time and be like, okay, I want to combine that, that, and that. I want to see what that makes. And I think that's the second reason why the cooking succeeds in this game. It is very rewarding to cook, and there are many different combinations you can cook to come up with different things. And, of course, there's also your basic cooking, in case you're just interested in the stat benefits, which are very easy to do. You know, you get a few hearty shrooms and you're good, basically, right? So I think cooking was a very excellent uh, addition to the game. Especially since, as I mentioned earlier, cooking basically is all about healing and buffs. Healing is duh, I don't think I need to explain that, especially since everything in this game hits like a truck. But um, the buffs, again, are, aren't really necessary for the combat, but are still useful for the combat. You do still have the option of having buffs to kind of get around some of the problem, well, some of the issues that might arise in combat, especially if you're fighting a Lionel and you don't know all his patterns. So it's like, uh, okay, um, 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 um. okay, I've got more health and I've got more damage. Let's go, right? The final note I have here is the trials. I mentioned Eventide already, which I praise the hell out of. There's also the shrouded area, the area which is almost pitch black. You can see like a few feet ahead of you, which is another excellent usage of the engine in the game in order to try and encourage you to play in a somewhat unusual manner, um, forcing you to adapt how you go through the section. You could argue that the Yiga clan area is a similar section to this, but I don't know about you guys, I just climbed my way through there. <laughs> Screw dealing with those things. But the Lost Woods is another area that I feel they did very, very well when it comes to the design of a specific spot that was very carefully crafted to encourage you to go through it in a specific manner. Uh, point in case, all three of the locations I just mentioned, while you can enter them from quite a distance if you plan it with the gliding, those locations basically all force you to play by their rules as long as you're there. Um, the Lost Woods is the most obvious example of this. You can glide in from some distance and manage it, and then you run into fog, and now you're down in the Lost Woods, right? Good stuff all around. Whew. One of the things, let's talk about story. I mentioned I had a major complaint when it came to the story, and that is that the plot is spread too thin. There is a central plot to this game, as there is in most Zelda games, and there's a strong story focus in this game, but the main plot is is spread across way too much bread. 
Like, if you bounce between each of the major dungeons and then immediately beeline for all the Zelda memories, you will, if you just play in that style, you, you probably won't have this impression. If you play in any other way, you'll get this thing where it's like, all right, here's some story for the main plot, and then you'll pay, play for seven hours, and then here's some more story for the main plot. As has been commented by many other people, and I agree with this assessment, the amount of plot, and I keep emphasizing plot, not story, the amount of plot in this game is about standard for any given Zelda game, really. It's just that it's spread out across a much larger terrain, more or less literally. There's so much else to do that is not plot-centric in this game that you could run around for literally hours without actually running into the next major cutscene. And I feel like that is to the game's overall detriment. While there are certainly things that guide you in these directions, there's nothing to really connect them together. And I feel like, to, to be brunt, there just should be more. There should be more uh, character stuff for the main, the main characters, the main voiced characters, and there should be more stuff for you know the, the, the main plot and the focus on the calamity. We'll get to that last. <laughs> Which brings me to... It's another point. This is kind of a related point. I feel... Oh, God. How do I want to start this? Let's talk about continuity. I don't want to go into a full diatribe here, but it is my... I like continuity. There's my opinion. Bam. I want to talk about why I feel continuity is a good thing in a story-centric game. Because continuity ultimately is all about context and consequence. If you do something in a game and then it never matters again, what's the point of that, right? That can still matter. It can still be enjoyable. It can still be relevant. But only in the moment. It's when it has impacts or ripples later on that tends to add a feeling of investment to that action. This is especially true when it comes to story-centric games and a, a franchise which is supposed to be connected to itself and basically isn't. With the, I, would, I have argued many times that with the exception of Ocarina, Wind Waker, and Twilight Princess, the Zelda games are functionally unconnected. And, I, and I, in my personal opinion, I feel that is to their detriment. Now, that is purely my opinion, but for my evidence, I point to Ocarina, Twilight Princess, and Wind Waker. Three of, th those three are generally considered the best Zelda games, with the exception of the more recent entries like uh, Link Between Worlds and Breath of the Wild. And I feel like the added impact of Ocarina's impact on Wind Waker and Ocarina's impact on Twilight adds to those games, in addition to the fact that they were very well-crafted games in their own right. It's not something that's mandatory, because Lord knows there are other good Zelda games, other great Zelda games, but you can see why I see it, say that it adds to it. So the Zelda timelines, for all of the, the effort that is put into connecting the Zeldas, Really, there's nothing actually connecting them other than a few vague bullet points. Nowhere is this more obvious when it comes to what I imagine some of you are already thinking or some of you have already dived to the comment section saying, well, hang on a second, plenty of Zeldas are connected. Like, one goes to two, and LTTP goes to Awakening, and I, I forget all the specific connecting points. But I imagine the one most of you are saying is the most obvious one, Ocarina to Majora's. But Majora's is not connected to Ocarina. It is set immediately after Oots. It's set immediately after Ocarina of Time. But there is nothing connecting Majora to Ocarina. It is another episode. There's no actual continuity between the two. You follow me? 
because nothing that you did in Ocarina affects Majora's other than the fact that you are still playing the same character immediately after the preceding events. This is why I speak so strongly about the very concept of continuity and its usage in a long-time franchise. You with me so far? Now, I know you could also argue niggling details, and you're welcome to. It is my opinion that Majora's is not connected to Ocarina in any meaningful fashion. There, there are only two connecting points. You're playing Link, looking for... Uh, uh, oh, God, I said Link, I think of her name. Na- uh, Navi. You're, you're playing Link, looking for Navi, and Skull Kid is there. That's it. Two points. That's <laughs> the story of Majora's has nothing to do with the story of Ocarina. By contrast, the story of Wind Waker is directly a sequel to and a follow-through of Ocarina, and the same thing with Twilight, to a somewhat lesser extent. So this game is set 10,000 years in the future, is probably after Twilight Princess, based on evidence, but according to official sources, they don't even know. And at this point, I don't think it even matters, because they set it 10 millennia after anything. So the only thing we know is that this is probably set in the Zelda timeline somewhere, and anything else is completely irrelevant at this point. When you have that monumentally huge gap of time, there's not really a lot of continuity that can be done, which I would be okay with, except for the fact that they constantly reference older things. Like, they they reference Ocarina... Uh, twice. Uh, they reference it with regards to Ruto, and they reference it with regards to Ganondorf being from the Gerudo. And they they reference... Uh, you know, I'm going to stop there. They, they make several references. I'm not going to list them all. Why bother even doing... If, if you're that opposed to the idea of adding continuity to your franchise, why bother pretending to? I would rather they did an all-or-nothing approach here. Just my opinion. I would rather they say, yes, the Zeldas are con- connected and we have more Ocarina to Wind Wakers, or no, they're completely unconnected and we have Skyward Sword to Minish Cap. That being said, now that I've got my negatives out of the way, one of the things this game does extremely well is flavor of tone, which is basically the sixth point of story, the enjoyment, and world building. The world building on display is monumental. Um, I'm just going to rapid fire these. These are the ones that really stuck out for me. There are 76, 76 side quests in this game that just involve helping some guy out or helping some girl out or doing this thing for this person or finding this thing over there. And I'm not even talking about shrine quests. That's separate. Just 76 random quests you can do for NPCs in this game. This, in my opinion, is why I still say the story of this game is enjoyable, because even though its plot is fairly focused and spread out too thin, and even though it doesn't have any significant continuity to the past, it does have a lot of little stories here and there. These little stories help add to my enjoyment of this game significantly. Oh, by the way, if you have both DLCs, there's actually 90 side quests in this game, but I digress. Beetle. Beetle is here. He's, he's buff, of course, because he's carrying around all these goods. He has this whole thing where he's constantly praising you and either flirting with you or just trying to butter you up. I'm not sure which it is, but I did like uh, interacting with him. Kilton and his whole, you know, oh, I love monsters. They're so cool. One time, I almost nearly got killed by a Lionel, and it was awesome. Um, Picongo. And the, who asks you to go help him find vistas in order to paint, in order to see new things. The, um, I actually didn't write down his name. It just occurred to me. But the gentleman who uh, had lost his wife and was and he had this prized cuckoo. 
And that was like one of his things. And you have to go find his specific Kuko and help get his Kukos back together, you know. Um, Tracy, the writer of the rumor mill section, which adds wonderful flavor to the world and, and gives you the impression that people are actually moving through it and interacting with it as you go through. Uh, Bozai. Well, I don't actually like Bozai. He was an excellent introduction or in, in, inclusion into the thing because he's someone who really, really wants to have a Gerudo girlfriend. And he's probably the worst possible person for them from their perspective, considering what the Gerudo people tend to value in this particular game and the fact that he is none of that. <laughs> Although you can, you can totally mess with him and get some boots out of that, so that's nice. <clears throat> There's also Paya, Pura, and Impa. Now... Uh, Paya is adorable. <laughs> this is a girl who has basically grown up hearing stories about the great legendary hero. And then she meets him and she's like, <gasps> I have no shame in saying that I can exactly see why a lot of people who are interested in guys romantically would be very interested in Link. Just about any Link, but especially this one. Given all that he went through back in the day and all that he goes through in this particular game, he is what I would like to call a catch. So seeing her just being like, oh my gosh, you, um, um, it's a, it, one of the funniest things you can do. And the animation in this game is just top notch in general, is if you talk to her without a shirt on. And she's like, oh, uh, and occasionally she'll peek, <laughs> which just really sells it like, ooh, oh, yeah, no, no. Oh my god. Of course, Pura is fantastic. Um, the woman who decided to experiment with the aging syndrome, or the aging syndrome, aging serum, excuse me, and ended up making herself a kid, but nevertheless is someone who is brilliant and, of course, helps you uh, divine, divine and, and develop and invent several things. Impa, the, who plays her usual role of the wizened embarker of information, the expositor, if you will. Uh, in the there's a couple. There's just three more I wanted to jot down here. In the Gerudo village, in the Gerudo city, I should say, there's a Vo class. I love that. I love that little cultural tidbit there that they actually have to have a class to teach people how to deal with Vos. And that would be guys for those of you not aware of the terminology. <laughs> um, Terrytown. I love the Terrytown side quest. I really do. It's 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 one of the longest side quests in the game, and I love seeing this town slowly built up and slowly develop, and getting. I mean, yeah, there's benefits to it and all that, but who cares? It's just cool helping these people build a village in the middle of this this incredibly like terrible place to build a village, um, and of course you got the marriage and all that fun stuff. It's great stuff. It's great stuff. And finally, the Yiga clan, which. Interestingly enough, somehow manages to not be stupid evil. Despite the fact that the Yiga clan uh, all venerate and worship the Calamity, or Ganon, or Demise, or whatever you want to call it, they nevertheless still have personalities. They still have subtleties to them. Um, one of my favorite little tidbits in this game is the fact that you can run into a random NPC who's like, Hey... And now I kill you. You know, I, I know that sounds stupid, but I enjoy those little flavor tidbits and those little encounters. And of course, uh, we see Dorian, someone who defected from the Yiga clan. Even though he is still betraying you to the Yiga, he's doing it in the interests of taking care of his people. After all, his wife was killed by them after he left, and so he's trying to take care of his children. He has a chance to make up for it, so that's okay in its own right. I love the fleshing out of the world of this game. I didn't even mention most of the Zora 
uh, or the Koroks, both of which have their own little tidbits and wonderful little flavor and wonderful little bits of lore. There's a lot of world building in this game, and I feel that's probably one of the reasons I still enjoy the story of this Zelda, despite the issues with the plot, which brings me to my next point. So there's four champions, right? One of the things I find interesting is that this game has voice acting. Controversial opinion. I like the voice acting in this game. Yes, even Zelda's. No, I'm not saying that ironically. I actually was really confused when uh, I was streaming this and listening. I was like, oh, this is cool. And so many people in my chat or in comments or later on in reviews of the game would say, oh, the voice acting's terrible. Uh, okay. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why people don't like it. If anybody would like to explain their opinion on that, please feel free to do so, as ever. But for me, I enjoyed the English voice acting. I felt that it added tremendous uh, character to people who are ultimately only one- or two-note characters. There's not a lot to the four champions, but the voice adds more to them, makes them more fleshed out, makes them more centric. This is especially true in the champion's ballad, consequently. But I do like that. And I am hopeful that they continue to do voice acting in the future because I feel they did a good job here. They even do a good job of explaining why Link doesn't talk. Which, I'm going to mention really quickly that I have very little to say about Link in this game. He's not as characterized as he has been. There's been more, there's been Links with more character than this Link. Wind Waker Link comes to mind immediately. Uh, even Twilight Princess Link had a reasonable amount of characterization to him. This one's characterization is mostly the goofball who, <laughs> I mean, you ever stay at the inn at the Zora, in the Zora plays? Uh, the goofball who would like to enjoy life but is so scarred by everything he's had to go through that he has basically become mute as a consequence, that he he barely knows how to deal with all this. He is, in every way, someone worthy of the green tunic, to, to phrase it into such terminology. But I don't have much else to say about him other than that. Uh, he is, in, in my opinion, more interesting as a contrast to most of the champions than he is as a character in his own right. And when I say most, I mean specifically uh, Rivali and Mipha. Or is it Mipha? God, I don't actually... I'm pretty sure it's Mipha. Let's, talk with, let's start with Urbosa, though. So Urbosa is... Uh, I like to think, and this will tie into something I talk about later, I like to think that Urbosa is what Ganondorf would have been if not for the curse. Now, obviously, Urbosa's female, but other than that, their personalities seem rather similar. They're both very boisterous, they're both very ambitious, they're both very proud, and they're both very powerful warriors. Um, Urbosa is probably overall the strongest of the four champions. The one who would be, you know, front line, or to use a typical MMO setup, she would be the main DPS. She would be the one leading the charge, while the tank, that'd be Daruk, is holding aggro and Mipha's healing, and Rivali's doing, you know, he's the, he's the rogue or the uh, utility DPS. She's the one who is doing the bulk of the damage, though, and she has no problem showcasing just how much of a badass she is. Uh, probably my favorite personal example of that is when the Yiga threatens Zelda, and she just curb-stomps them. Urbosa just crushes them like a bug. Urbosa also is observant. I hesitate to call her wise, because we don't get a lot of that, but she is the kind of person who is paying very careful attention to everything around her as befits a warrior who is always on edge and lives in a very hostile environment like the desert. God, I'm sorry, I know this sounds weird, but as I've been talking about this game, I want to keep playing it again. 
If, if nothing else tells you how much I love this game, take that away from this video. I want to pick up my Switch. It's right there. It's on my desk. I want to pick up my Switch and just go back to playing this. I could see uh, that kind of mentality being Ganondorf, assuming the curse never took hold, but we'll get to that later. Um, Urbosa also is probably the only one who really picks up on the burgeoning uh, relationship between Link and Zelda, which is another interesting point. Very few Zelda games have had a overt romantic uh, interaction between Zelda and Link. Zelda 2 barely did. Um, Wind Waker kinda did. Spirit Tracks did. Spirit Tracks definitely had that. And I'm not sure I can come up with any other examples off the top of my head, but in this one it's made very clear that despite their initial interactions, the two do grow close. And I know this sounds like a weird thing, but this is probably the only game I've played where I can kind of believe that, that romantic interaction between Link and Zelda, because it has time to develop. Because we see what they're like when they meet, we see what they're like when they get closer, and we see their journey together as we go through all these memories and as we interact with the champions and blah, blah, blah. Moving on. Rivali. Now, Rivali is a nice contrast to Link, because Rivali is good. He's really good. He is an excellent flyer. He's an excellent fighter. He is clearly a, a, a perfect pick for someone to be a champion. But he is the assistant to Link. So like I said earlier, you know, two-node characters is what I like to think of characters like this, or two-dimensional characters if you prefer. He is very good, and he's rather jealous, but he manages to grow past some of those. It's mentioned in the Champion's Ballad that he actually has a very low opinion of Hylians in general, or Hylians if you prefer. And I find myself wondering if that's one of the reasons why he was so against Link. Okay, you happen to be born to the right person, and therefore you happen to be the right destiny, therefore I have to follow you. I mean, you can kind of understand that mentality, right? Why should I follow such and such just because they happen to be birthed the right king? Is a parallel I could uh, I could present here. As I mentioned, he's also good, but one of the things I love most is that he isn't just good. Again, the champion's ballad fleshes him out uh, in the sense that he worked to be that good. He strived to be that good. He pushed himself as hard as he could, and I like the idea of the ace who had to work at it. Someone who had to really make it to make that happen. Because in this way, he is a nice comparison to Link. Link himself is someone who wasn't just born with the Master Sword in hand. Although it's easy to see it that way, we learn, both in flashbacks and throughout the course of this game proper, Link has to frickin' earn it. He has to really pour himself into this. He even drains the Master Sword, poor Fee, uh, in his efforts in order to try and make this come to pass. It is legitimately impressive. But, of course, Rivali didn't see any of that. And so you can kind of understand that aggravation. The only time he finally lets go of that is after you beat his dungeon and defeat the Thunderblight or Airblight or whatever it is, Ganon. At which time he's like, okay, fine, you've proven yourself. Which I, I'll give Rivali credit on that one. He will acquiesce if you prove that you're worth all of the praise that is heaped upon you. Which brings me to Daruk. Now, Daruk is, is the guy I'd probably get along with best of this group. He's the, hey, hey, let's, what's up? Let's go have fun. You know, he's that kind of a guy. He is also very charismatic and very boisterous, and arguably the leader of the group, of, of the six. He's also someone who 
seems to lack understanding. My favorite example of this is when he offers some rocks to Zelda, and she's just like, and he's like, what? What's on your mind? Because it wouldn't even occur to him that this is something that she wouldn't want to eat. I also love uh, how he is... Oh, yawn attack! Uh, he is the one who seems to have the most trouble learning how to use his, his beast. Which makes sense, because this is basically a giant Magitek mech. Right? It's not the kind of thing you'd think would be intuitive to control. You know, you ever been in the pilot of an airplane, for God's sakes? So, I like that. I also like how he takes an automatic liking to Link so well. It's implied, although I don't think it was ever stated outright, that he and Link actually knew each other before the, the group was starting to get together, before the whole champion thing started becoming a thing. And so you can kind of see that brotherly friendship going throughout his perspective. Which, of course, leads me to Mifa. Now, she's probably the most stereotypical of the characters. All four of these follow a stereotype of a sort. You know, we've got the the powerful, the calm, collected warrior, the loud braggart, who is really good, the boisterous, ha-ha, get along with everyone, and the shrinking violet. Uh, she is so clearly that sort of shy... I don't, I don't know if I really want to do this, but I will do this if I have to. And, of course, she's also essential to the group because she's the healer. <laughs> Derek was the tank, as I mentioned earlier, but she is definitely the healer and the one keeping them going. It's been mentioned that she has been healing Link since she was a child. Also, apparently, there's a fairly large disparity in aging between Hylians and uh, uh, Zora, which makes sense because there's still Zora alive now who were alive during the hundred years earlier you know, be, during the, the catastrophe, during the apocalypse, since this game is functionally a post-apocalypse game. And that's kind of weird in its own right. One of the things I always found strangest is that she never at any point bothers to actually admit how she feels for Link. The one time she comes close, she gets interrupted. I suppose that's part of the trope itself. But I like to think that the two of them... How do I put this? I don't see a lot of chemistry between the two. Unlike the earlier Link and Zelda example, to me, I don't think Mifa and Link would actually work that well because there's no real dynamic between the two. She is adoring of him, and he is grateful to her, and he thinks of her, well, I, I presume this, because it's not a lot of what he thinks of her, but I presume he thinks of her as a friend, someone he's known since he was a kid, and someone that, you know, he obviously has a great deal of protectiveness of, and would like to, and, and values her, but I don't see anything particularly emotionally connected there. Zelda is an interesting one. This might be, I'd say, the second or third most active and most characterization a Zelda gets. She's she's in the running with the Zelda from Wind Waker, Tetra, and she's also in the running from the one in Spirit Tracks, who's basically a member of your party. If anything, my biggest complaint about Zelda is that we didn't get more of her. One of the things that was mentioned by the developers is that they actually thought about making a playable Zelda. And the only thing that they, the reason they didn't do that is they couldn't figure out a way to make that work in the story. Which I find hysterical because that would be very easy to make work in the story. Have Link be the one who sealed Ganon. And then have you play a Zelda who fought against him. Bam. Literally flipping the roles would not be particularly hard from a storytelling perspective. And I think that would be kind of awesome. Ideally, of course, I would want a Zelda where you play as uh, Link, Zelda, or ideally Ganondorf, 
And the play style is significantly different. What I'm talking about here, what the developers were discussing, was basically just a cosmetic change. You're playing as Zelda, but she still has all the exact same movesets and all the exact same abilities that Link does. Shrug. That still would have been nice. I still would have preferred that. But if anything, like I said, I wanted more. I wanted more of Zelda. I wanted to see more of this person. There's this wonderful bit. She is probably the most fleshed out of every individual character in this entire game, appropriately enough. We see in her someone who has been pushed her entire life towards something that, while she agrees with and she accepts, she doesn't really feel. This is something that is part of her life, but she just can't seem to understand how to make it work or how to make it happen. One of my favorite little tidbits, and I don't know if this is, this is just me wildly speculating or not, is when she finally stands up to defend Link in basically their final battle. And the Triforce manifests then... Because the impression I always got is that Zelda was detached from... I, I guess the word I want to use here is her destiny, even though I hate that word. But, you know, she was detached from it. It was something she was taught. It was something she was told. But it was never something she felt. Not until she decided to stand up for Link in that moment. The way I say... The reason I say wild speculation is because, to me, that's not showing wisdom. That's showing courage. And I actually really like the idea of her manifesting courage in that moment rather than anything else, but moving on. She also... Her relationship with her dad, my God, one of the most depressing things in this is when you find a diary entry from Rome and he mentions how she has done everything she can to fulfill this destiny and he has been a terrible father to her and he knows it and he has pushed her and pushed her and pushed her because he felt like he had to, but he laments it and he hates it. So he's going to try and make it up for her once she returns from her final trial. And that's when Ganon attacks, so he never gets the chance to make it up to her. She never actually had a loving father. Or more accurately, she never knew she had a loving father. So Zelda is someone who comes across as very cold. I would go so far as to say someone who is intellectually cold. It's mentioned in one of those other dire entries that she didn't even cry when her mother died because she was so reserved and so taut. Zelda is someone who I find to be a very tragic figure in this game. This is someone who never had a childhood and never had the chance to really develop or grow in her own right. This is something that the ending promises might happen. You know, now that now that this disaster is finally over, over now that her destiny is finally fulfilled, phew. Although, whether or not she'll be allowed to do that depends on English or Japanese translation, which aggravates the crap out of me, but anyways, we'll get to that later. I also, as I mentioned, I like her voice actress. But I also like her slow development of, okay, you, Link, go away. <laughs> I don't want you following me. Okay, fine, I'll accept you following me. I, there is a, a gradient to her, her and Link's interactions with each other. I want to use the word relationship, but I don't mean that in a romantic way. You can tell how the two became a team after a while. And then from becoming a team, you can see how they became friends and how they developed feelings for each other after that point. There's a more smooth gradient curve there, which I think helps the dynamic significantly. I also have to admit that Zelda by far sacrificed the most in this. Ignoring the fact that she sacrificed her childhood and basically didn't have a life of her own, she then spends a century, which is ridiculous, but she spends a long time focusing all her power and effort into preventing the calamity from properly manifesting and reincarnating. She spends all of this time and effort doing this, sacrificing her life for a hellacious amount of time, until Link finally gets back. I was like, oh, thank God. 
Okay, Link. 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 Please. Can we get on with this? Please. And then Link runs around and collects Korok seeds for hours while Zelda's like, come on! Anyways. And when it finally gets down to it, you know, we finally get to Zelda, we finally release her, we finally defeat the spider death mecha thing, which is actually very cool, but regardless. She... I feel... There's the, 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 the exalted breath, okay? It's a concept that I don't get to talk about a lot in fiction, because most fiction doesn't actually do that. It's when you've been holding your breath, metaphorically speaking, for a long time, and then you did it! <sighs> you did it, right? And I feel like that's very satisfying, and it made the final encounter, despite the fact that the fight with the, you know, the dark beast, the malice thing, um, even though that fight was relatively easy, it was still very satisfying because of all that we had done up to that point and because of the conclusion of her storyline, the fact that she now can finally let go of that breath and actually live her life. Which brings me to the villain of this story. Let me go ahead and admit that I don't like reincarnation as a storytelling trope. It's just not my thing. I'm not into it. I don't have any particular reason for it, other than the fact that I feel like it detracts from a character if they are only such and such because they are the reincarnation of such and such. I know it's a common storytelling trope, it's just not my thing. Having said that, based on more recent evidence, including this book, which I actually combed this book for information for this rumination, this one right here, the Zelda Encyclopedia, which came out a few months ago, uh, this doesn't actually cover... Breath of the Wild in particular, but it does cover several things that are relevant to Breath of the Wild, which is why I bothered to comb this book. Reincarnation is such a predominant theme that one of the statements that is made is that each of the villains of the Zelda game is basically the same person. That we are always fighting demise, or more accurately, a reincarnation of demise. This, the idea here is that Ganondorf was never an individual. He was always just a manifestation of demise. Or that Zant wasn't an individual, or that um, Vadi wasn't an individual, or uh, Maledictus, or whatever his name is, in Spirit Tracks. I can't remember his name. You know, that all of these people, Bellum over in Phantom Hourglass, that all these people are just aspects of the curse or the, the reincarnation of demise. I don't care for that. I don't like that, but that's basically canon, so whatever. <sighs> Anybody who watched my stream knows that when I killed the final, when I landed the final blow, I actually said, this is for Ganondorf. I've had a lot of people complain about my comments about that and discuss my comments about that. And we've had some really interesting uh, back and forth about this. But I want to kind of codify my thoughts on that, especially having played through this a second time and really thinking about it. I think that Ganondorf was never allowed to be a character. The only time he ever really gets any significant characterization is in Wind Waker. In fact, I had the thought when I was working, going through the game for this rumination that Bowser actually has more characterization than Ganondorf. And I don't mean that as a joke, a meme, or an exaggeration. Thanks, thanks especially in part to the RPGs, uh, as well as the comics, and even the main games, Bowser is actually a fairly full, fleshed-out character with layers to him. Ganondorf is not. The closest we have is Wind Waker. Otherwise, Ganondorf has been a fairly one-note and occasionally two-note character. This is also despite the fact that there's basically only one Ganondorf throughout the history. Supposedly, the Ganon that was in uh, Four Swords Adventures is actually a reincarnation of Ganondorf, 
which is stupid, but... So that means there are two Ganondorfs across all of Zelda. It's always the same individual or the one in Four Swords Adventures, because he has to be a special snowflake. And despite being so present in so many different games, he's just a bad guy. Like, like that's it, right? In character, though, this makes a degree of sense, because he was never allowed to be anything else because of that curse. The curse of demise is arguably the source of the reincarnation cycle between the three predominant characters, the three aspects of the Triforce. That curse is a hatred, a virulent and vicious, I despise this land, therefore I wish it to hurt. This, although I don't care for it, does explain why so many of the villains in this series, and Ganondorf in particular, is such, are such one-note characters. Because all they are about is, screw you! All it is is that hatred. All it is is that rage, that malice. What we see, in my opinion, this is getting into theory crafting now, what we see in this game is the ultimate consequence of that curse. That Ganondorf isn't even a person anymore. That there's not any thought. There's no sentience and sapience left in this thing. That's why I kept kind of hesitating when I referred to it as the calamity. Because I believe what we're looking at is an it. What I believe we're looking at is quite literally the curse of demise. All of that hatred, all of that rage, all of that virulence. They even call the crap that it spews all over the place malice. And all of that malice is removed once the source of the curse is either destroyed or absorbs it back into himself. Nowhere is this made more apparent to me than when we first fight the first Ganondor fight. And this, we see this giant Magitek, you know, Sheikah death thing. And it starts roaring up. And it's like, it is a monstrosity. It is an abomination. And you could just see Ganondorf's skull there. <laughs> right? Now, there are other ways to interpret that, of course. The most obvious one being that this is, that he was slowly reforming himself into a full person and then would be a full person. But I don't see it that way because I, I prefer looking at this as a way that that is the, the battered husk of what once was a person still being carried around by the hatred of this curse. That we are literally fighting the curse itself rather than any kind of being here. One of the arguments I've had some, heard some people theorycraft here is that, well, that doesn't make sense. This is, there's clearly some intelligence on, on board. There's even a character in character who says, he was smarter than we took, you know, than we took the measure of because he was able to manipulate the Sheikah weaponry. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that's true. I don't think that the Calamity has any more sapience or sentience, any more intellect than a wolf or let's pull it down even further from that, then, I don't know, what's a stupid animal? <laughs> a dog! I'm kidding, I'm kidding. What I mean is that I see animal instinct, not true intellect, not true ability to think or understand or observe. Everything it does, and I'm going to keep saying that, everything it does to me feels like an instinctual interaction rather than some kind of intelligent design. It, it reaches out and corrupts and manifests and warps everything around it as part of that hatred, as part of that desire to destroy it. Which leads us to the very final battle. Now, I mentioned the translation problem earlier. In Japanese, and this irritates me, he, you know, Zelda's like, oh my god, he's manifesting as Ganon because he refuses to give up on reincarnating. Okay. In the English, 
She says, he has given up on reincarnating in order to manifest all his power at once. Now that makes a lot more sense to me. The, the idea that he would show up as this ridiculously powerful, monstrous manifestation of malice is the kind of thing that feels one-winged angel to me, not, I want to be a person too, you know. Quick aside, because I don't use the term one-winged angel all that often. The true purpose of a one-winged angel, as far as a literary trope, is I have lost everything. My schemes, my plans, my intent, whatever it is I'm after, is done. I can no longer conquer the world, obtain this power, or whatever. The one-winged angel concept, literary speaking, is I have given up on all that, and I am now going to push myself harder than I should to be more powerful than I normally would be to kill you. Because at this point, it's all about screw you. This is all I've got left. A properly done one-winged angel is someone who, if they killed the player, wouldn't then go on to kill the world because they have burnt everything that they have to become that one-winged angel form. And that's very much the impression I get from from malice. I'm just going to call it that. The malice fight at the very end. Because this is just this monstrously huge, incredibly awesome looking concentration of overwhelming power. And that it has decided, the curse has finally reached this conclusive point across its massive journey across all the Zelda games to date. And finally, after all its efforts and all its manipulations have failed, it's like, screw it. Let's get all of the power in one point. And it is a huge amount of power. Demise was strong well before the Triforce of Power got involved. It concentrates all that power into one spot, and that one spot is going to smash and rip and tear until it can't cohese anymore. And there's nothing left. That makes more sense to me from a literary perspective, from a thematics perspective, and in many ways as a cap to the Zelda series. And it's probably the one and only thing that has continuity from the Zelda series to this point, as I mentioned earlier. The idea that this is the end of the curse of demise, and that we might be able to move on from this after this. Now that won't happen, because as I mentioned in the Japanese version, it's the exact opposite of what I just said. And, in both the Japanese and the English versions, Zelda flat out says in the ending, he'll come back someday. Which is stupid! I'm sorry for being so upset at this, but this, this is this close to being an awesome moment. And like I said, a true climax cap of the Zelda series to date, and allowing them to go in different directions with the story in the future. But instead, it's, it's just another fight against Ganon. And that's the intent, and that's dumb. I did nevertheless like this game a lot, and I hope you enjoyed my extensive thoughts on this. God, I don't even know how long I've been talking. Um, for <laughs> This is why I only put bullet points down, because all I needed was bullet points for a game like this. I will see you guys next time.